I just would sit and think, what is the life I want to have? Who are the people I want to be surrounded by? Not just in my personal life, but in my professional life. I wanted people who also cared deeply about helping people so that we all could flourish. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, the community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Michelle Maldonado. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Lucentia. It's a human potential and business transformation firm for developing leaders and organizations. Michelle designs and provides leadership development and coaching. And through her work, she's worked with everyone from PepsiCo to the United Nations peacekeepers and humanitarian aid workers. Michelle is and does so many things. She's an entrepreneur, a business leader, a mother, a wife, as well as holding certifications in emotional intelligence, mindfulness, and meditation. Most recently, she ran and got elected to the Virginia House of Delegates. Michelle is not a career politician, but she was moved to run for election following the public murder of George Floyd and the storming of the Capitol, and she sees her role as a bridge builder. We talk about so much in this conversation, from why she thinks compassion is different to empathy, the three breath meditation you can do any time of day, how to talk to people with different views without demonizing them, my emotional intelligence is so important in business, and how she discovered meditation age seven. I hope you enjoy. I'm so excited to speak to you because I just think you're absolutely amazing. And I first discovered you um, because I did the Palouse Mindfulness course and he includes some of your videos on it. And the one that I came across actually originally was you talk about um, a bunch of stuff, but you talk specifically about this thing of the three breaths that anyone can do at any time. And it really stuck with me. And I was thinking, oh, what is that? I've got to speak to her. And, and then as I looked into all the other incredible stuff you're doing, I was like, this yeah this is someone I definitely need to speak to so thank you so much for agreeing I really appreciate it well I thank you for the invitation and I love what the podcast is about when I did look it up and I love this sort of something that starts with this little seed this curiosity as you say or this feeling like you just it's just calling you you can't you can't keep ignoring it it just keeps coming back and that's how I think a lot of people end up doing surprising things in the world Uh, so I love what your podcast is all about we could start by doing or just talking through that three breath meditation um, because I think it could be quite useful for listeners to understand it and use it in day-to-day life. Sure. So what I describe and, you know, I didn't create it, it's, it's out there, um, but it's called a three breath practice. And, and I talk about it as something that's so easy to use because as I'm often fond of saying, You can do it in stealth mode, so nobody has to know you're doing it, or you can be very open and public about it. It just depends on the context and the circumstances. But with each breath, you kind of attribute an intention or something to it. And uh, with the first breath, you just simply uh, bring your attention to the sound or sensation of your breath. So just really kind of grounding your attention, your focus. And then with the second breath, kind of scanning the body to see what's up, what's happening. Are my shoulders tight? Are my jaws clenched? Am I feeling relaxed? And that's just a noticing. You're not trying to fix anything, but maybe you do need to kind of shift and wiggle a little bit to bring some more ease into the body. And then with the third breath, it's really interesting. You can do whatever you like. I I like to do one of two things, either set an intention or ask a question. Mm -hmm. If you ask a question, one that I find is really helpful to just ground us in the moment asking the question, what's important now? 
not tomorrow, not later today, not yesterday, but right now in this moment, what's important now? And that often can help us kind of just really bring all of us, our full presence, just boom, right here. Um, the other thing that is um, helpful to do is to simply set an intention. Maybe you're about to go into a really contentious conversation or meeting and you're a little nervous. So you kind of do your three breaths. And then with the third breath, you state an intention like, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to listen. Or, you know, I'm going to do my best to show up positive, curious, or what have you. I'm going to do my best to help solve this problem. And so all of these things are reminders for ourselves to impact um, how we show up. People feel that. And either people like the way that feels or they don't like the way that feels. That's not always about you. A lot of it is the other part of the equation is what is that other person going through? What's happening in their lives? And that informs how they perceive and experience things as well. With the third question, do you think the question is always one of service? A lot of anxiety or, or stress or overwhelm comes from kind of ego-based states. And sometimes by you know, grounding yourself and what can I offer to other people can be quite helpful. Is it, does it tend to be service-based or is it, can it be kind of anything? Well, I, I think the, the easy and the full answer is it can be anything. We have to embrace the practice based on where we are. We have to meet the practice where we are. The practice has to meet us where we are. And if that moment, a, a different question serves to help bring us to where we need to be to help settle us, to help kind of get us focused, then we should ask that question. Sometimes some of us have our own mantras. Or we have our own things that help us kind of like, oh, right, this brings me back. And so if that, if somebody has something like that, then by all means, use it and play around with other types of questions or intentions or declarations or statements that are supportive or that inspire and motivate you to whatever it is that you're trying to do. So I think there is a lot there that we can practice and play with because it's, it's, it's not a binary kind of decision. We have, we are complex beings. And so, so I think it's, I think we'd be flexible and fluid with it. I guess it's just that, <clears throat> pardon me, it's just that thing of being skillful and choiceful. Is that yeah. the kind of lens? And are, are there any, for anyone listening, he's like, that sounds good, but I don't know what I would say. Are there any kind of examples that you use in day-to-day -day life? Yeah. So, well, the first thing I want to say is that I love, I think we should be fluid. The reason I often say what, ask the question, what will serve is because sometimes when we are lost in our own emotions, mm -hmm. we forget to connect to the common humanity and the greater good. When we take our eyes off ourselves, then we start to really tap into that cohesive, interconnected, interdependent fabric that makes us all who we are. If we need uh, something else because we are working on a particular set of circumstances or in a particular kind of environment, um, things could be. So for example, if we know that uh, this person, um, whenever I'm in the presence of this person, I always feel small. I feel unseen. I feel whatever. Uh, maybe for you going into that meeting to help you feel like you are coming fully in your own standing, in your own power, your own self-mastery, maybe your statement, your declaration um, before you walk in is, I am powerful, or I am, you know, um, I am worthy. Sometimes people have challenges and insecurities about their own self-worth. And so maybe somebody's statement is, I am worthy. I am worth it. You know, um, some people might feel like um, they're going in and I'll tell you, you know, a lot of times people feel like they have imposter syndrome, especially when they're starting a new job or they're moving into a new position. And so sometimes that third breath gets accompanied by, you know, if you're, uh, you know, new to a creative and design team saying, I am creative, I'm talented, I'm innovative, innovative, or I'm going to go in and I'm going to help create the most amazing next thing. They're often really personal to us because we all show up with different life experiences and different inspirations motivate us. And so part of the fun, I think, part of the journey is figuring out what are the things 
that best motivate us in a very authentic and self-compassionate way. I want to go back in time, and I know you've told this story many times, but I think it's such a fantastic one. You discovered meditation informally when you were seven years old. Is that right? Yeah, it was between um, first and second grade. So I think you are uh, six, seven during uh-huh. that time. So I, it's so it's around there, I think. Could you tell this, the story of kind of how you first discovered it and also how, how it felt for the first time? So uh, I grew up in the northeast region of the United States. The, that region is called New England. And I grew up in a, my family is Cape Verdean and Cape, of Cape Verdean descent. And Cape Verdeans are an island people, about 15 islands off the coast of Senegal, West Africa. So our, our native language is Portuguese. I, I, when I describe it to people who have never heard about it before, I, said, I tell them, think of a Caribbean island and all the culture and the mixtures of the music and the uh, intersection of European and African influences. And, but instead of being the Caribbean, it's off the coast of Senegal. Like many islands that have the legacy of colonialism, we are uh, raised as Roman Catholics. And so um, my grandmother's sister, though, at some point had become Buddhist. I don't know when, she never talked about it. Uh, it was, but one summer, and she was everybody's favorite aunt. I mean, everybody, anybody could get two minutes of airtime with her. We were just on cloud nine for the rest of the day or the week. And my older sister and I were about a year and a half apart. We got to spend the summer with her. And the first week we got there, a couple of days in, she asked us if we wanted to come sit quietly with her. Now you could imagine as this seven-year-old little kid, I wanted to go to the pool. She was introducing us to the indigenous communities, the Lakota Sioux, the Cherokee nations. There were rodeos. I wanted to do it all. I wanted to ride my bike, play in the dirt. And I remember thinking like, why would I want to go sit quietly? And then I said, oh, but wait, she's the favorite aunt. Maybe there's something to it. And I said, okay, my sister and I went with her. And I got up into the chair and she didn't tell us it was meditation. She didn't say, think this way, do this thing, put your body this way. There was just, it was just complete freedom and openness. And she said, she stood behind me and she placed her hands on my head and said, quiet here. And then she moved him down to my heart and said, so you can be here. And that's all she ever said. She went to go sit down and said, and when you feel like you're ready to get up, even if I'm not done, feel free to quietly get up and you can go outside and play. So that's what I did. And, and I don't know when she did this sort of quiet here, so you can be here. Somehow I had this imaginary line of breathing from my head to my heart. I just intuitively focused on the breath because that's all there was. Mm. And, um, and it felt calming. And then I would go outside and I, I felt like the colors were brighter, the sounds were crisper, and I felt lighter. And I just felt more joyful. I took that with me that summer. I would, my older sister didn't continue it. Um, she does now, but it, it took well into her adult years before she kind of returned to the meditation practice. But I stayed with it and um, it helped me through some difficult times. Um, I really credit it to helping me be able to navigate and be more resilient and, um, and healthier. There are some health conditions in my family. One of them is high blood pressure. Some of my siblings and my, my, my biological mother, they have it and I never had it. And I believe that some of the things I've been fortunate enough to kind of move around is because of the way that I work with the breath. And, um, and there's lots of research on it about how it helps the immune system and other things. So, so I feel very lucky. Now, the thing that's different is that I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I didn't know there was a name for it. And I didn't know that it was called meditation until I was 18. And that's when I started to realize, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> so I think that's so interesting that you even felt the effects of that at six or seven years old. And you had that awareness and that memory to me is amazing. Because I think you're still at that age, you, you, you know, how people talk about kind of the inner child and, you know, these, this like natural state that we all have of being joyful and curious and compassionate. The fact that you even felt a change there at six or seven is just amazing. Well, I, I think as adults, we find that miraculous when we see that level of awareness in kids. But what I find is that kids are naturally like that. They are naturally like that. I have a son 
And when he was four, um, we were trying to make sure that he didn't stay in his head all the time. We wanted him to be have a sense of somatic awareness, like what was happening in the body. And um, I remember asking him one day, and he was so very excited. There's these toys called that are these robots, you could call transformers. And there was one particular transformer that was really challenging. He had moved up a level. They are different levels of challenge. And he comes running downstairs because he had done it. And he's like, mommy, I did it. Look, I finally did it. And I don't know what made me ask this question because he was so excited. I said, well, how does that feel in the body? And without hesitation, he was like, like soda fizz. (laughs) (laughs) And like, so like he knew exactly what this joy felt like in his body but we don't ask our kids to pay attention there we we over index on the attention to the mind and so i think that kids are naturally there we unteach that by the way we we nurture them and it's not you know malicious or even intentional the thing i was interested is that there was a before and after because yeah because yes. I agree with you. I think the natural, I mean, it's amazing that your son was able to identify it. I didn't know that kids were able to kind of identify that sense of things. But it's also this sense of you experience that and you were able to look at that. that to me, that's incredibly advanced. Even adults often can't yeah. really tell the difference between before and after. Well, um, I think I had moments in my childhood, you know, I had a really tumultuous childhood and there were lots of self-preservation, self, you know, survival techniques. And some of them often related to me drawing into myself and then being out in nature. So I grew up on the beach in a beach town. So for me, water was always restorative and replenishing as a, as a young child. And, and I, you know, I'm old enough that back then kids just went off and came home at dusk. Right. Yes. So I would ride my bike to the beach as a little kid and I would just sit there. And uh, that I think probably added to sort of what does it feel like just being with the ocean, uh, not talking, but being with the ocean in silence. And so, you know, if, if you're help, having me look back and see like what were the, the things that I did maybe that made me more prone or susceptible to being aware in that way. And uh, it was likely that I have a, a great appreciation and love for being at the water's edge, the ocean's edge. And I think that there is nothing like that feeling of um, when you just kind of let everything go and just listen to the water, listen to the waves, listen to the seagulls. It's, um, it's pretty powerful. Mm. I want to move forward slightly. So you're 18 and yes. you've discovered now, oh, I've been doing this for like 10 years um, mm-hmm. and it's actually meditation. Did that, was that weird as a realization that you'd actually kind of been doing this thing that had a name without realizing? It was, it was very weird <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I had not done it in a group setting and the way I stumbled upon learning that it was meditation was by watching some people in a room. And I was like, what is that? That looks weird. And it was very funny because I was my freshman year, first year in my in college, and uh, I was volunteering at a local gym, a studio. And in exchange for free classes, I volunteered at the front desk to check people in. So however many hours you volunteered was how many classes you got. So I had just finished my hours at the desk and I saw that they had changed the schedule. So I went to look to see what the new classes were. And I saw these, excuse me, people sitting in a room. And I was like, I don't know what that is. That looks very strange. And um, and then my friend who was volunteering with me popped up over my shoulder. She goes, oh, they're meditating like you do. And so she knew what I was, she just assumed I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and um, I was like, wait, what? She's like meditating. She's like, you do that all the time. And I'm like, well, I didn't know. And then I just started doing research and understanding that there was all these lineages from all kinds of religions. And sometimes people think that it is purely related to Buddhism or to something else. But, you know, every religion and non-religious communities have some forms of contemplative practice. And so what I was really appreciative of at that moment was, you know, I kind of wished, I was like, man, I wish I had known all this. But at the same time, what it allowed me to do 
was to bring a secular version of mindfulness to people who couldn't otherwise understand or really get past a belief that it somehow was a religion. And so the gift that my great aunt gave me was to be able to speak in everyday language about a practice that belongs to everyone. And when I asked her about it, she is, she just turned 96 in April. And I, and I went in her late eighties, I asked her why she didn't tell me, give me the language, the word. She said, you were seven, you know, you needed to go out in the world and use your own language. <laughs> so one thing that I was interested in is actually unpacking which parts of your life were side projects and passion projects and when they kind mm-hmm. of overlapped with your full-time work. So what I could deduce was that you were a lawyer for many years and then you joined the American public university system, which focuses mm-hmm. on educating the armed forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you were there, you started building Lucentia, but I wanted to check with you, which is an organization for leadership development and coaching. Yes. Is that right chronologically or was there a different it order? Is. The step though, that I will tell you that's right before that is that when I was figuring out what I wanted to do professionally, when I was going into college and then sitting there and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, see my older sister is... Uh, your sort of stereotypical activists that you see people marching in the streets like, hey, we need equal pay for equal work. And that was my sister. She worked in the health kind of community health space. But I had this idea that there were, we need people on the street. We need people uh, holding people accountable from the outside. But I was worried about what was happening inside these organizations, inside these agencies. And I was seeing corporate organizations you know, really exploit natural resources and people. And I wanted to be what I called at that time, a corporate activist, somebody on the inside who was really pushing to create a better organization and ripple impact in the world. So my sister was on the street. I went inside. I got to law school and I'm sorry, to um, college and decided that I was going to get a law degree to go do business instead of an MBA to do business. I felt like that was going to give me some uh, more critical thinking and sort of negotiation and compromise skills that I thought was going to be helpful for the kind of change I wanted to create. So I did that and worked in the tech space. So I grew up professionally in technology. And then um, after leaving uh, an internet company, took about a year off to kind of reconstitute, figure out what I wanted to do, and then went to the, the organization that was an online uh, university for primarily focused in helping to educate and degree completion for active duty military and veterans. And what happened was in, um, I think it was 2012, the former CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, wrote a blog post called Managing Compassionately. And at the time I was a director, I wasn't an associate vice president, I wasn't the CEO of a company or anything. I um, read that and was blown away. And he talked about how he wanted to make LinkedIn the most compassionate company in the world. He was talking actually with his mentor, Fred Kaufman, who wrote a wonderful book, Conscious Business, who I had, that I had already read. So I knew who he was. And Fred listened to him and said, just remember that compassion without wisdom is folly and wisdom without compassion is ruthlessness. And I thought, oh my goodness, drop the mic. (laughs) I don't know why I'm being so quiet. What it did is it challenged my own notion about why I was quiet about my contemplative practices. I knew the benefits. Uh, And I thought, well, if this man is the CEO of a publicly traded company and he's using all these, quote, soft words, then what do I have to lose? I'm just a director. So it was during that time that I started to speak with other people. And my former boss would say, you know, what is it that you do that makes your team so high performing? And I'm like, it's not what, it's how. And then I started talking about mindfulness and what that was. And and I started creating programs internally for people in the organization. And then my clients, well, they started to get wind of what I was doing. And then they started asking me to speak to their people. And it kind of took on a life of its own until I realized that that's really what I love doing. That's what I had always done in all of my roles was helped people uh, in this way to show up their best selves. It's it's a personal leadership Mm. that then extends to professional leadership. 
And, um, and then, uh, can I, and, can I pause you there? Just yeah, to of course. explain that better. Cause I think it's a great, uh, distinction. Yes. So personal leadership, I think is, you know, understanding, having this sort of the level of self-awareness and self-management, uh, first and foremost about what are the things that make us who we are, that, that, um, make us show up the way we do to respond the way we do to things. And all of that relates to our life experiences, our traumas, our joys, uh, what we suffer through, what we triumph through. And it starts to help form a lens, a filter through which we view the world and others and ourselves. And so when we can work on our personal leadership, that's our personal presence, our personal power, that then becomes the base for which your professional leadership sits. And your professional leadership starts to look at how do I create things like psychological safety? Can I even create a space where people feel safe to be here if I don't feel safe myself, if I haven't worked through and noticed the places that I get triggered and then I create a ripple that makes other people fearful? So I don't think that you can effectively create really strong, sustainable professional leadership without dipping into some of the personal leadership. I want to get back onto this because it's, it's such a big topic, but I, I just wanted to ask you just to go back. So you've started these kind of internal workshops and talks and yes. you're starting to get a bit of confidence that actually this is something you're pretty good at and people seem to want. When does it start to kind of spin off into something that's separate from your main work? So about two years later in 2014, I could feel like, oh, it was time for me to grow. Like I have these moments where I feel like it's another growth moment. Like there's things about myself that I'm working on and and I don't approach it from there's something wrong with me. I think, you know, we're all here to be the best we can be. In order to do that, we're continuously learning. And so I invest in myself. And, And sometimes when Um, there's a moment I feel this like, oh, it's time to do something for you. And I want to be a better person, a better human. I want to be my reach my full sort of potential as a human, as a mother, as a wife, as a leader in an organization, as somebody in my community. And I know that all roads lead back to each of us, like all roads lead back to you, to me. And so I didn't know what that looked like, but I stumbled upon a program uh, called uh, that was offered through a nonprofit that started at Google was spun off called Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And they were doing a year long training around mindfulness based emotional intelligence for leaders. And I thought, oh, this sounds exactly like when my heart just kind of opened. I'm like, this would be amazing for me to do this. I And I kept thinking about all the ways I could help people in my current or then current organization. And I got into the program. It was transformative. It was so powerful. And I I came out the other side, a totally new version of me, uh, all of me plus more. While I was in it, I had no intention of going out into the world and doing anything with it. I was going to stay at my job and I'm like, this is my job invested in me. I'm going to give this back to my job. And, And I stayed there for three more years. I started sharing it with others. And then around 20, end of 2016, 2017, there was a change in leadership. They didn't want me to do this work anymore. But at that point, I realized it was so much of who I was that I had a decision to make. And so 2017, I spent the year thinking, what am I saying yes to? And what am I saying no to? And it was a calling. It was something that I was just kind of, I'm going to help people. I'm going to help people right here in my organization. But now my organization is saying, I can't do it. And I could feel it viscerally in my body. I'm like, but I I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. And uh, I couldn't ignore it. I kept trying and it kept coming back. And every time it came back, it came back stronger and harder, like all in my face. <laughs> and, um, and so end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I was like, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to have to jump. I'm just going to have to. And I had started, you know, doing some engagements on the side. And the one thing that helped me have the confidence to jump, and I know this is rare, but I, I knew when it happened that it was the direction I was supposed to go. Two um, CEOs of, a, of two different organizations had asked me to do some work, but I only had two weeks vacation and I had already exhausted my next year's vacation. And, and I told them, I said, I can't, you know, I'm still working, but you know, I, I don't have any more vacation time. And both of them 
like exasperated, big exhale and said, what are you waiting for? If what you need is for me to sign a 12 year contract to guarantee a 12 month contract (laughs) for me to get 12 years would be very generous. Um, 12 month contract to guarantee you work as you transition. I will do that. And two separate CEOs said that to me. Wow. I didn't end up having to sign any kind to do that. But the fact that they had that kind of belief in me, uh, I, I had to ask the question, why didn't I have that same belief in myself? Even though I knew this is what I loved and I have since described it like my passion is that I love to help the people who help the people because those people are frontline workers are, you know, whatever those people who are helping others, they don't really get much, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they don't have as much access. Their job is to give. They don't often receive. And I wanted to help with that. And so 2018, I made the final decision after my husband and I kind of figuring out what does that look like? And I left in March of 2018, and I've been doing it ever since. You said you felt it almost in your body. You know, you couldn't ignore it anymore. What does that feel like for anyone listening? Who's like, is this whatever it is making a decision? What does it feel like? Or what did it feel like for you to know that something was your calling? I always could feel that where I was, there was it was leading to where I was going to be. And it wasn't saying, I don't want to be here anymore. I wasn't impatient. I could always just feel there was this particular moment was important because it was a building block for what was coming. I did feel impatient sometimes, but a lot of times I felt confused because I didn't know what that thing was, but I could just feel it. I could feel a yearning, uh, but I didn't know what it was. And then once I started to get a sense of what it was, I felt a lot of anxiety. I felt a lot of stress. Because I didn't really embrace it right away. I thought, oh, that's not possible. I couldn't, I couldn't have my own company, which is really funny because as a lawyer, I help people develop, start, and run their companies all the time. And I grew up in a family that was very entrepreneurial, but I had always been the helper, not the person who led it. And so I was like, oh, that's not me. And so it caused a lot of tension, a lot of stress, a lot of tightness in my chest and like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And at the same time, I would, I would then oscillate to like being really excited, like, oh, but what if? So for me, I wasn't always in a state of joy or always in a state of anxiety. I, it kind of mixed. And it wasn't until I could kind of really reframe how I was interpreting those sort of emotions. And um, one of the greatest gifts I gave myself was looking at those things and saying, that is simply me figuring out my path. And that's the, those emotions, those feelings, that energy is all about what my body is summoning for me to be able to move into that next stage, that next season of my life. And one of the best um, video segments that I saw was one by Dr. Kelly McGonigal that talks about your relationship to stress. And in it, basically the, the great takeaway, one of the great many great takeaways is that if you can reframe your relationship to it, then, and and so that reframing was, oh no, yeah, this is okay. This is what happens when you're about to do something big and bold and it's okay. And so nervousness, anxiety, bring it, but I'm not going to let that take over because I'm also excited. And, and that eventually over time helped me kind of build the confidence to, to, to be brave enough to go try it. So it almost feels like there's there's two things there. One is that it wasn't a kind of light bulb. Oh, this is the thing I want to do. It was more this kind of sense of I'm on the right path and I don't know quite how it's going to manifest, but I feel good about this thing. And then the second thing is actually yeah, reinterpreting that arousal that it's not anxiety, it's excitement or it's preparation. The reason I was nodding along so much just then was because I think it's such an incredible approach to anxiety, whether it's performance anxiety, you're about to do a talk or you're about to do a speech or something. Instead of saying, oh, I'm actually, I need to get rid of this. It's like understanding it and sort of saying, no, I'm anxious because this thing's important to me. I love it. Yes. You talk quite a lot and you focus quite a lot in your work around emotional intelligence. Um, What does it mean to you, emotional intelligence? So I think we are emotional beings. And so many people have kind of laid this wet blanket over emotions as if somehow it's weakness, or it blinds you, or you've got to you've got to put them in a box, 
when you go to work. And the reality is, is that we are fully complex emotional beings. And so somebody who's emotionally intelligent, one, believes that and understands that that is the nature of being human. But when you're emotionally intelligent, you not only have this awareness of yourself, uh, this self-awareness, but then you can take that lens and turn it outward and, and leverage that muscle you built about your own self-awareness to be able to see that in others so that when you meet them, you are not only managing yourself, but manning your responses to how others show up around you and with you. And you're also aware of the impact of your presence. So there's a lot of times where you kind of move through the world and you're, you're, you're not even aware that, you know, you just created scorched earth over here or you, you know, did something, but you're just kind of plotting it along. So um, it does relate to the four, you know, key pillars of emotional intelligence. And so the way I look at it is um, if you put on one side <clears throat> things that relate to the self, that's self-awareness and self-management. And then on the other side, how you then show up with others, that's social or situational awareness and then relationship management. And all of those four things interrelate and are interdependent, but none of them could exist without self-awareness. So everything goes back to that pivotal and foundational piece, um, because if you're not self-aware, what are you managing? If you're not self-aware, how do you notice mm. social awareness? How do you navigate relationships? Uh, so, <clears throat> and the other piece of that, is that I think, uh, and there, you know, Daniel Goleman does some really great work, uh, obviously, in this, and he cascades underneath each of those domains, some subsets. But one thing that's really important, too, is I think that emotionally intelligent people are also compassionate. And the way I look at compassion is empathy in action. And so the difference is that when we're empathetic, we are sort of aware of what other people are feeling. And we, we keep a healthy boundary between what's our stuff and what's somebody else's. But when you put it into action, you're also asking what would serve. And so if somebody is having a moment where they're in difficulty and you're, you're aware of that, you know how they feel and you're not having, you know, absorbing that emotional contagion, but you're also asking yourself what would serve here? What would serve the highest good in this moment? That's compassion. You can't have compassion without empathy. And, um, and sometimes though, people aren't even sure what compassion really means. And they think it's, oh, just being nice or agreeing to somebody with somebody and making somebody feel good. But compassion can be that, but compassion can also be a very fierce and direct conversation. Um, compassion can be saying nothing at all. Compassion can be kind of holding space while somebody struggles a little bit to learn how to grow. So compassion when you, um, you sort of dance in the realm of compassion and you thread that through some being emotionally intelligent, I think you create an embodied way of being that not only is seen, but is felt. What do you think blocks compassion most often? Uh, fear. <laughs> I think people misunderstand what compassion is. We're also in the Western world, and because I think other cultures get this really well uh, in Asia and some other indigenous communities, um, I think as Westerners, we're starting to re-embrace compassion. But uh, for so long, we have been taught that those things are soft. I mean, think about the way Westerners talk about it, soft skills and hard skills, mm. right? <laughs> and and soft isn't good in, in Western sort of thinking soft isn't good, hard is good, uh, you know, and reality is, is that we need both. And when you are in, you know, a government agency or a corporate or things that are mission or uh, revenue driven, sometimes people say, we don't have time for that. We already have enough to do. Or my organization doesn't really allow for that. So the question is, what, what does that mean? Because compassion isn't something to do. Being compassionate is a way of being, right? Just as being mindful. It is a way, these things are ways of being that inform what you do and how you do what you do. Mm. So there is a sort of reframing, a redefining that needs to happen for people to fully embrace 
the possibility and the permission to be compassionate in the world of work. It is not soft. And it doesn't mean that mission doesn't get accomplished. And it doesn't mean that revenue isn't made. It means that there is room for both while you are treating one another as fully human. So I think increasingly, as you say, there's studies that show that compassion has a real um, economic impact on companies. But when you started this, it was was it 2015, did you say? Yeah, so I started, uh, I think 2012, I started, I stumbled upon the conscious capitalism community and I'm like, oh, these are my people. This is exactly what I'm talking about, that yeah. capitalism doesn't have to be at the expense of humanity. Mm. And so from that 2013, 2014 on, yeah, people were not really talking about this in mass ways. And, um, you know, and then a couple of years later, I think Time Magazine put, you know, people sitting in lotus position on conference room tables. And, and I thought that was actually, while I was appreciative of having the conversation elevated, I think the representation create was problematic and wasn't really reflective of what it really was or it's, you know. Um, so words matter, images matter. Uh, but yes, there, there was not a whole lot happening. And what it taught me again, going back to what my aunt created for me mm. when she introduced me to, to meditation was the importance of using language that met people where they were, the vocabulary. So I wasn't going into a whole bunch of companies talking about compassion and meditation. I was like, well, where is this company? Where is, where is it on the spectrum of its growth? And so maybe for this particular company, they were familiar with the word empathy or they were familiar with um, emotional intelligence because that had been out there for a while, but they couldn't quite uh, open the door to the other things. And so those things came in as part of the dialogue, but they weren't the things that we led with, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I would explain the definition and then say, some people call this mindfulness. So I don't start like, well, let's talk about mindfulness. Mm. We talk about all of this and then I give them the word. Literally what your aunt did for you. Yes. Sort of let them let them experience it before yes. you label it kind of thing. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you, so with that kind of cultural context of people kind of understand it, it's a little bit woo-woo, it's seen a bit maybe not it, quite ineffective, a waste of time, plus your imposter syndrome of starting, you know, you, you mentioned you're quite anxious about it. I'd love to kind of just go back to that moment, that really, really early stage, because I think it's that thing that's just forgotten you now. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about your your latest move in a second. But, you know, now you're where you are. And with these incredible achievements, it might be hard for people. People listening to this will go, she's been meditating since she's seven. You know, she's one of those people that just like gets it. She doesn't have any problems. And it feels like that <laughs> transition, <laughs> that transition of, you know, going from just starting something completely by yourself is difficult. And I'd love you to kind of talk through what that experience was like. Yeah. Well, first I want to just address the, oh, she's been meditating since she was seven. <laughs> Think about that for a moment, truly. So I say this all the time. If you had asked my seven-year-old self, how long did I meditate? I might've said hours. It was probably two minutes. I mean, I was yeah. seven, right? So I had these, these snippet moments, right? That sort of planted seeds. So, and mm. I do it, I, I don't, I didn't do it in any perfect, perfect way. And I still don't. Um, and, um, and I think uh, Dan Harris has a great video where he talks about, you know, mindfulness doesn't make your world be full of unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> Everything is still fully human. And I always encourage people to remember that because it's so easy for people to put others on pedestals or say, hey, look, that I can't possibly do that. And I'm here to tell you that absolutely you, we, all of us can. It was very scary to... Uh, take the jump. Now I knew, you know, my son was younger. My husband and I were very, we were very, we we're just very unconventional. Uh, we knew early on before our son was born, we looked around and we had a, a large house. We had a couple of acres of land. We had fancy cars and by everybody's definition, we would have arrived to where, wherever that is like success. Or, and we looked at it and we were like, this is baggage. <laughs> this in order to maintain this, we had to work a certain way, which we felt deprived us of living life fully. Like I didn't want to have to worry about if I needed a re to repair a tire on my car, that that one tire was going to cost $500 versus if I change my make and model of car, 
all tires could be changed for less than $500, right? And so we began to downsize it. I didn't know it at the time, but when it got to the place of me trying to make this decision when I was really scared and nervous and doubtful of whether I could do it, but also at the same time knew I could do it, the things that I had been kind of bubbling and bumping up against around the surface and the way my husband and I had, had kind of reimagined how we wanted to live in the world and to create enough room for us to be fully present and, and live an experiential life. This helped me say, this is another experience. I'm moving into a new season. Quite honestly, I mean, I was afraid for about five years. I did nothing. I, I just kept trying to build myself. I kept trying to do more to justify like my credentials. I didn't really know that that's what I was doing at the time until you know, my husband pointed out to me in his ever sweet way, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why do you need another anything? Like, you can just, you can just be you and do this work. You, you've been doing this work. While everybody can um, experience nervousness and be fearful about what if it fails? How does that impact other people? If I fail at this, you know, I had a family, blah, blah, blah. But it is something that women do more often than men. We feel like we have to get so many more things in place before we jump. And thankfully, I'm seeing more women just kind of go out there and do it. And, you know, a lot of people are risk averse, right? And I also was trained as a lawyer. So my job was looking for risk. Yeah. Like, let's, let's mitigate the risk. And so sometimes <laughs> I was my own worst enemy. Like, oh, need to fix that first. And, but ultimately, I just would sit and think, what is the life I want to have? Who are the people I want to be surrounded by, not just in my personal life, but in my professional life? I wanted people who also cared deeply about helping people so that we all could flourish. It went to me, it went beyond thriving. Thriving is beautiful, but it also feels effortful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and flourishing to me, just when I say the word, also allows for a little bit of grace, allows us to just let our journey be our journey and that we're always unfolding. And I was lucky. I had, I had a person in my life that supported me, encouraged me and believed in me even when I didn't quite fully believe it. And I think all of us need somebody or something to reflect that back to us. And, um, so I was not quick. I mean, a lot of people say, wow, look what she did. And like all, you know, she always gets everything. I would have people say like, you get everything. Everything always happens to you. I'm like, okay, that happened. I started that six years ago. It just looks like <laughs> it happened overnight. Or I started that 10 years ago. And so, um, so yeah. <laughs> Is your partner also into mindfulness and the same kind of things as you? Or do you have different values and interests? So uh, his just shows up differently. So he uh, finds his contemplative practice in martial arts. And he, uh, he has like some of the more aggressive martial arts like Krav, Magan, Kempo, Karate and things like that. But he also is a teach, he teaches martial arts, but he also uh, has a very deep practice in Qigong and Tai Chi. So for him, his, his contemplative practices show up in those ways. So um so while it's not the same, it, it is similar. And we find uh, a common ground there in the way that we show up in the world. We have to talk about the fact that you are now a state representative of the Virginia House of Delegates. Amazing. Yes. Um, why did you run for office? And why do you think politics can benefit from mindfulness and meditation? So that also... Um, was a couple year journey um, and I, that I didn't even know I was on. During COVID, uh, one of my clients had invited me to do a congressional briefing for folks on the Hill that brought in some of these sort of mindfulness capacities and some other things around leadership and cohesion. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I was like, you know, if, if there were ever a place uh, that would need this, it would be politics. <laughs> like that was it. And then... Um, couple things happened over an 18 to 24 month period. There were three critical touch points. And the first one was in the last presidential administration, the crisis at the border. And what I saw at the border were children 
um, being subject to such intense trauma, children and families. And I thought, what better way to create generational trauma than mm. to do, than to allow what was happening. And it's very complex. I, I appreciate that. But I looked at that and my heart broke for these children because I didn't look at them as those children from Central America, South America. I looked at them as our children. The children of the world are as everybody's child. And, um, and I remember being uh, so just rot with how, how could I do anything? I'm just one person. This thing is so big. How could I possibly, I remember like looking up, like, how can I help? And within two weeks, I had a call from Customs and Border Protection to bring in my work to help their agents. What I call, how do we help keep the humanity in crisis situations? How do we uh, remember to see and treat one another? And it's, it's so hard and it's so complex, but it's so necessary and so important. So I thought, oh, that's my calling to come in and get into these sick, sticky places and help. But I remember thinking, but where are the political leaders who aren't standing on one side of the divide? I wasn't seeing enough people who were willing and brave enough to stand in the middle to say, listen, like this divisiveness, this broken, ripped, torn fabric that we are adding to is not acceptable. And I wanted to see more bridge builders. So that was the first time I asked the question. Then the summer of 2020 happened here in our country where three, there were many deaths that happened, but around social and racial justice with three people in particular who were murdered, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and then ending with the very public murder of George Floyd and the ensuing um, protests and riots that, that happened and, um, and people's views of that also was very divided in our country. And again, I was asking the question, where are the politicians like, you know, that are saying we've got to bring people. Now I'm not saying nobody was doing it, but I wasn't seeing enough. What I was seeing was more and more division. And then the third and final straw was the insurrection at our Capitol on January 6th. And when that happened, I felt like, where are we? What, where now are the people? Because what happened after that is people came out immediately and said what it was. And then in the weeks afterwards, the same people started saying it was just a friendly tour of people. And they were, they were, rewriting the narrative of something that was so dangerous in our country. And it was at that moment that I said, I need to stop asking where these people are. Maybe I'm one of those people. And that got me thinking. Um, and then in March, first, you know, when it first came up to me, I was like, no, no, not me. That's ridiculous. I don't even come from politics. I don't even know how to do politics. I don't, how do you do politics? I don't know. But what I did know is that I was a mom looking at all of this thinking, uh, I have a, a black son and I was scared to death that something would happen to him. A lot. This happens a lot in families of color. We have what we call the talk with our, our young boys, especially, but also our young girls. And um, I, I wanted better for all of our children. I want better for us. And so I chose to run. And I ran on a platform of bringing us together. And it's very hard because a lot of people really like to fight. They like the division. They like what people told me was theater. I had, I had politicians tell me, oh, I love the theater. And I thought, how dysfunctional, how toxic, and what a disservice to the people who elect us to be playing theater in public office. And I just, I wanted, I was hoping that what I was doing in my professional life, I could bring those elements to my political life. And it's hard. Um, and the jury is out <laughs> as to whether it will ultimately make a difference. But what I do believe is that we won't know unless we try. And even if we don't reach the ultimate um, broader impact, there's no way that you don't impact at least a few people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is enough because you never know what their ripple is going to be. When are you going to run for president? I am not. 
I want to talk a bit more about the divide, the division thing, because I think it's so interesting. And I heard you speak on another podcast about this in such an articulate and generous and compassionate way that's just not being talked about at the moment. I think like there's so much division and both both sides in, in loads of different topics, you know, it's, it's across everything. And I, I'd love for you to explain how you how you approach, for example, maybe talking really practically, actually. If you're talking to someone and they're completely opposite to you in views, how do you approach that conversation? Well, you know, I think the first thing is we have to understand what our, our buttons are. And, uh, and all of us feel very righteous and very passionate in these times. And so somebody may say things that you think are absurd or not commonsensical or just dangerous. And so what do you do when you have somebody across the table saying things like that when you're when you're kind of like, well, don't you see how dangerous that is? But they may feel the exact same way about you. Mm. And so um, the the invitation for us all is to try and calm the fire just a little bit, not put it out because you know what? Fire helps us cultivate the change that we all need. But we mm. have to figure out a way to usher the change forward that brings the maximum amount of people with us. And um, so what I often do, and I actually had this very, I've, you know, since being in office, I've had this happen a lot. And I remember meeting with uh, a constituent uh, who I've had a number of constituents who were from a different political party, had very clear, different um, ideological positions, and then were surprised that I agreed to meet with them. Because other people, they said, wouldn't meet with them because they knew their position. But my belief is that if we do not do the hard work of listening and understanding one another, we're, we're not going to agree on everything. But if we don't even engage in the dialogue and practice that muscle about how to do that with respect and courtesy, which is different from agreement, <laughs> mm. um, we have to, we have, to, we are going to be in trouble. And what that invites us to do is move from uh, judgment and certainty, as I often say, because I am, I am judging you and I am certain that I am right. And I am certain that you are wrong. Moving from judgment and certainty to discernment and curiosity, discerning, like what are the complex layers? You know, everything that you are saying is coming from a place that you actually believe, or you think you may not believe it's true, but you might think it's the best way to get to where you need to go next. And being able to discern what is present with them, with you, with the collective, then can tap into some curiosity about where are the opportunities to see what else is present, to see where else there may be common ground. And if we can't agree on these polar sort of positions, where in between can we at least broker an understanding and movement? And when you do that, you start to cultivate trust. And then you start to see one another as human. It is very hard to demonize somebody that you like or that you understand or that you respect. Very hard. So when we create these this space uh, it makes it easier for us to treat one another as less than human. And so what I'm trying to do and what I'm inviting people to do is to get in those hard conversations. And the hardest work in those conversations is managing yourself, not the other person. And we don't do enough of that. And this is not about being politically correct. It's not about um, saying nice things. It's about doing the hard and good work that people who elect representatives to do, must do. But until we can sort of get to that place, and some people are doing it, my hope is that it will start to ripple out and there'll be a little bit of a groundswell. More people will be brave enough to uh, stand up for the things that bring us together than the issue that gets them reelected. So some people, we have to be willing to risk re-election in many ways. And I think as soon as I say that, I know people are like, she's crazy. She doesn't know what she's talking about. If I don't get re-elected, I can't do this work. That's a problem. Who knows who would come in after me? There is a delegate balance because when you only operate based on whether this will get you re-elected or not, that is in many ways a foundation of fear. 
and we cannot be running and operating in political life based on fear because fear clouds judgment, fear clouds and prevents connection and fear limits how much good we can do for everyone, not just for ourselves. You mentioned that sometimes it's kind of justifiable that we might be passionate about a particular issue and feel enraged when we talk to someone else who disagrees. What are practical tips that someone can do to kind of calm their nervous system or to, uh, to be more curious and discerning around those conversations? Yeah. So, well, the first thing I want to say is that none of this, uh, when we're showing up with respect and courtesy in these difficult conversations, none of it is pretending we're not angry. None of it isn't even about not showing that you're angry. Showing that you're angry with a particular issue isn't bad. It's how do you express that anger? Can, you know, I can be in a conversation with you and you can tell by my tone, my body language, the words I'm choosing, that I'm angry or that I'm really frustrated. But when I project it onto you and I use it as a weapon against you, that's the distinction I'm saying. That's where the self-management comes in. So it's not about squashing emotions. It's about managing the emotions. And, and there is such a thing as like sacred rage. You know, I felt what I call the sacred rage when I saw the video repeatedly of George Floyd being killed and calling for his mother. As a mother, that just broke mm-hmm. me wide open to think that, that my child would be calling for me in his last few moments of life. And so there's nothing wrong with with being passionate and upset, it is how do we wield that? How do we, how do we present that in the context of conversations? And I have to do this myself as I use that three breath practice. Mm-hmm. I use it before I get in the room. The other thing I do, uh, borrowing from my contemplative practices, is I will, I will set myself into sort of a really grounded place by wishing the best for those in the room I'm about to enter by wishing them peace, by wishing them clarity, as well as myself, so that when we when we gather, when we connect, we can be in that place. In the moment, though, in the room when things get hot and they get heated, taking a breath and then injecting a question into the, into the room. A lot of times we spend, we're so good at telling people what they should do, shouldn't do. Uh, we make a lot of statements. Mm. But we don't ask a lot of questions in comparison. So the question um, to present in a room could be a question that then helps the room to settle. And um, and I'll give you an example. I was in a, a very um, difficult training one time. And the question I asked this group of law enforcement professionals was how do they keep the humanity in the equation when it's difficult and people break the law? And it broke the room wide open into really powerful conversation. There are some really big issues when you think about politics, but politics is a microcosm of the country, of the world. There are just some things that people will never agree on. And mm-hmm. so if you're pro-life versus pro-choice, there's no gray, right? Most people are going to, they're going to be one or the other. There's, there's really not a whole lot of room. There's some people say, well, yes, with exceptions, but people are usually pro-life or they're pro-choice. That's a very good example where people probably will not come together to some kind of common ground agreement. There might be little, little exceptions, but Mm. when that happens, do you demonize, do you vilify the other side Or do you stay focused on what the highest outcome is, what the benefit is? And it's very hard. We don't do that well. We think, you know, those people are evil. These people are great. Or, you know, they want to ruin the country or they want to save the country. Like, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what political party you're in. Like you could pick somebody from either side or any of the other political Mm -hmm. parties and they could all say those things about others. You know, there's this, way that we are hardwired biologically from a neuroscientific standpoint and from a biological standpoint. And that is to look for safety. We Mm. scan for threat. The brain scans for threat and looks for safety. And the brain sees people who look like us, act like us, sound like us, behave like us as safe. And when there are disruptions in that sameness, there can be perceptions that that's not safe. 
And we have to be aware of that. Those are like the concepts of in-group versus out-group people, not mm. people like me, people not like me. Uh, John A. Powell from the Belonging and, Belonging and Othering Institute, I think it is, talks about this as bridging and breaking. You know, you, you can kind of bridge across these commonalities and differences or you break those kind of relations. It's a very simplistic way of doing it. But it's the same concept of creating in-groups and out-groups, people like me and not like me. And until we can identify that pattern in ourselves, we will then kind of dig our heels in and then treat those people a certain way as opposed to bridging. There are those kind of like big political questions which are online or whether in in your case, you know, in office. But then there are like personal relationships. So whether it's your partner or your son or whoever it is, do you ever have clashes with them about these kind of things? Do you think it's part of normal life, I guess, is, is my question. I think difference and commonality are all equally valuable and part of the common humanity. As in, of course, uh, there are differences in opinions and perspectives between me and my husband and me and my son. My son just turned 18. He's got all this like, you know, no, that's wrong. What are we going to do? I'm going to do some research. Let's figure this out. And you know, we, we all have our, our ways of feeling what is just in the world. And, um, but I, I think that we have to remember that it took decades for those of us who are over 20 <laughs> to become the people that we are. Like we're always in process. We're always, to borrow from Michelle Obama's book, we're always becoming, right? And we're, and so um, I think that um, one of the things we do often is because the brain looks for safety and community is that we over index on sameness or commonality. And somehow the implicit message is that differences are divisive. Dis differences aren't as important. Differences are less than when in fact that is not true at all. Differences are equal in value and importance just as the commonalities are that we share. And the two together make this whole thing we call common humanity. And when somebody says something like, um, I just, you know, we're all the same, we're all human. Yes, that's true. But my experience as a 5'10 woman who's 6'1 in heels, who is in this complexion and this kind of hair, experiences the world differently than you or my husband or my friend who's from Ireland. So we can't ignore the differences. They're not bad, they're just different, but they're equally rich as the things we have in common. And so until we can really embrace that differences are just as valuable, we will have this little, dis we'll have disparate sort of responses and treatments of people. <sighs> Amazing. Thank you so much, that was honestly, eye-opening and fascinating and useful in equal measure so thank you so much for your time thank you so much it's been amazing to speak with you georgia thanks for listening to the out of hours podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do leave a review or subscribe so you don't miss the next episode 